Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Following Films Podcast, a movie podcast that takes you on a weekly journey into the world of cinema and the minds of the talented individuals who shape it. I'm your host, Chris Maynard, and today we're joined by writer-director Max Gold to discuss his film, Bell. The film is a retelling of the classic fairy tale, Beauty and the Beast. In the film, Belle works on the family farm and cares for her father after he falls severely ill. Desperate to save him, she journeys in search of a mythical rose believed to be a cure. She must surrender herself as a prisoner to a vicious beast as payment for the rose. Battling the beast's spell and the two toxic relationships in her life, Belle's true journey is only just beginning. But before we dive into my conversation with Max, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Bookman's. Bookman's is your go-to independent bookstore where you can find an extensive selection of books, movies, music, and so much more. They truly believe in the power of storytelling and the magic of the cinematic arts. In fact, I picked up my copy of the 1946 film Beauty and the Beast that we reference in this episode at Bookman's. So if you're looking to expand your film collection, be sure to visit your nearest Bookman's and check out their classic slash criterion section. There's always something truly wonderful in there. Have you followed the following films podcast on Spotify? If you have, thank you. If you haven't, well, head on over to Spotify, search for following films and give us a follow. It really does help the show. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Max about Bell. The film opens in Avondale, Arizona on July 14th and hits on demand on August 22nd. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. You decide to do an update of Beauty and the Beast. Um, what was the white space that you saw in that story that said there's something here that hasn't been covered before? I, I feel like I have an original spin on this, which you clearly did. Yeah, that's a really good question. I I would say when you talk about the white space in the story, the story I'm thinking of just goes back way even before the the Western articulation of it that we have, which is the um fairy tale written in the like questionably late 1700s, early 1800s in France. Um, the one I went back to, there's a Scandinavian take called East of the Sun, West of the Moon, West of the Moon, which is like a, a beautiful folk tale that has a beast that I think at times is a polar bear of some kind. Um <laughs> I and it's it's this like glorious tale. It was like uh, it was re-illustrated by um, in in the twenties in this like amazing style. So like that has a Scandinavian tradition, and it is that Beauty and the Beast folk tale. So I pulled from that as well as um, just the Eros and Psyche myth in Greek mythology is very much yeah. just about otherness and eroticism and like what where does the one person end and another person begin so those were really when you talk about white space that's where i was starting from and like yeah we're all infatuated by jean cocteau's black and white take from so earlier beautiful. yeah i love that one and i i mean i've watched that so many times and i think that was probably still the largest influence but those are kind of the areas that i was thinking about and exploring a lot during that time well, I felt like that was a very clear influence because the when I walk away from that version of Beauty and the Beast, I think of movement right away. I just think of how the set moves and the camera moves and everything in that. It's just it's almost 
like a dance when you watch that film that has like a ballet feeling to it if that makes sense but it's such a wonderful yeah. film you can turn off the sound i mean obviously and you can just watch this thing and it absolutely i think the visuals are so important in that film i think yeah i, I totally agree with you he um pioneered like the slow motion um reverse slow motion special effect yeah that which like was so dynamic and poetic um wasn't Cocteau a poet anyway? Like just a poet messing around with. Cinema. Um, I, I mean, I don't know much of his history, but that I mean, clearly, yes. Yeah. I, I would say whether or not that's true, ended up becoming one. So I mean, yeah. there it's a absolutely poetic film, and it's yeah. yeah. I to me, that's the version I've become more used to. That's the version I revisit now. Obviously, I'm 46, so that wasn't the version I was first aware of but that's yeah. the one that i think is most etched in my dna at this point yeah. um, what do you think will be because i think there's a lot here still for people that are only familiar with the more modern western take on this story that they, they will see things here that are very familiar to them were there certain pieces that were important to you to make sure that you were aligning them in here um yeah absolutely i i more took that though as like a it was almost like meditative. So the beats of the fairy tale are, if you juxtapose them across these different versions, they're almost the same across these yeah. different, the Eros and Psyche may be different because, because Eros was a, a God and sort of a different shape of a beast, but there's always this element of the bell character leaving her father. There's the element of the father being widowed. There's the element of the beast character being um, maybe a double identity where he has a lot of redeeming qualities, but there's a part of him that did something really bad and um, is maybe irredeemable. So I I felt like, especially because of our um, really dramatic juxtaposition using the Icelandic landscape, that by sticking as close as I could to those elemental fairy tale beats, um, it would free up the the whole tone and narrative of the film to just flush with what was new and what was new was iceland as a place icelandic cast uh all but one icelandic cast and just letting that tale be repopulated in this place and time with these people and just sort of starting there as an experiment and then steering the ship as we went um that was kind of where my head was at well, I'm glad you touched on the landscape because the, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's a place that hasn't been overly filmed for me personally. I don't see a lot that's filmed in Iceland. It's such an amazing landscape there that I'm surprised um, it doesn't. Because when you're first watching this, it's trying to land on where this was immediately. It's, it's just doesn't feel quite like Scotland. It doesn't quite feel like Ireland, but it's like it's in that neighborhood. But there's something else here that's going on that's um, absolutely it's its own thing clearly and it's it's so beautiful that it's but it's not overly explored so it feels foreign it doesn't feel familiar you can't immediately land on it and it gives it this just almost otherworldly feeling i totally agree um i'd almost i'd use that exact same language to describe the feeling i get when i read children's fairy tales which mm. is like you're not you are reading literature of some kind you are reading a narrative and yet it's it's hitting you in a different part of yourself, of your perception, and it's echoing differently than a novel would that's maybe more cerebral or than a illustrated children's book would, which is maybe more um, delightful and fanciful. But a fairy tale, just like the Icelandic landscape, exists in this 
in between place that that is more like a dreamland. Um, and that quality of just not only seeing the landscape, but working within the landscape was something that just kept pulling me back year after year as we developed the film. And working with a majority Icelandic cast, what, what was that like for you? It was a delight. Uh, the the two principals, uh, Ingi and Andrea, by the time we filmed it, became old friends. So I have to credit the two of them for being my my cultural um, attaches. Basically, <laughs> they uh, Ingi especially pulled in friends, family, crew. Um, he was a producer on the film for that reason, and he just did so much to to loop us into his life there. And and they both were amazing. Um, uh they brought they brought their entire Icelandic um communities to the film to support it and um everything down to the horse we were riding. Like it was an incredible experience. Um so yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things that I think you can't pinpoint it when you're watching a film. It's not, it's not you can say this scene, this is when this is happening, but it's something that's like you can tell when everyone's heart is involved in a project when everybody is that dedicated to it. And there's something that it's the complete absence of cynicism that everybody is there to put on a show where it's not that nobody, nobody's there to collect a paycheck. And you have that feeling that everybody is doing like really putting something special forward. And I don't know how to define that, but it's something that you can absolutely feel in this film that they were all just really, they knew they were making something special here. And I think that's something that I don't know how that translates in film, but it's something you feel if that makes sense. I'm so happy that that came through. Um, we we all felt that way. It shows. I think we had a choice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I don't want to obviously spoil the ending to this film, but there is something that I I really appreciate about this ending where I it'll be described as ambiguous, but for every person that, encounters this movie i think people have very different reads on it but i think people will have very clear ideas of where this ended it's that you're cutting it off in a half beat and i think a good portion of your audience could say yep this is exactly what happened and another people could say no 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 it was this that happened and i really appreciate that it's a movie that is engaging the audience in that way and allowing them to project themselves into this piece that's awesome um i mean we could talk around it. Um, I, I'm glad that 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 it that it hit that way. I would say the um, you're you're a big fan of the cocktail film, so just talking around it a little bit. I think if you remember the casting choice of the ending of that film, yeah, you know that was kind of what we were rolling with. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to not spoil while talking about it. And we were and, and what that did to me. I and I'm open to your interpretation too in the cocktail film it pointed to the fact that maybe this fairy tale was not a literal unfolding and maybe it was inside the character of bell's consciousness or unconscious maybe it was yeah. a dream and not just like floating on the laurel of oh was it all a dream but the idea that these characters are just things within inside of her that she is reorienting and she's going through a change as opposed to they're literally happening. Um, and that concept of fairy tale as a metaphor was something that we, the entire time of making this film were engaging with. So that ending to us felt so obvious. Um, and we, yeah. we so much knew where it was pointing people. Uh, 
and I hope it, I hope it lands. And if it doesn't, I, I at least hope that it makes people ask some questions. Um, well, I, I'm, I would love, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing this with people that I don't know to have yeah. conversations after this, to see, cause I just have a very strong feeling that people will either think like you're saying, think of this as an internal piece or an external piece is the sacrifice that exists in this film. Is this something that is a literal sacrifice or is it something that you're going through that motion of when a loved one is in danger and how does that make you feel? Where does your mind go with that? Because when you sit with these emotions and when you're going through the, the cycle of both awakening and dying at the same time, that's all playing into this. So it's something that I was really happy to see played with in that way, but I'm, I'm really curious to see what other people will say. If I don't think I'm giving anything away with that, but I hope I'm yeah, talking yeah. around that well. Okay. I feel like we're being vague, vague, sufficient. It's, yeah, it's it's enough. So, but I, I, but I don't. I'm somebody who doesn't really give a shit about spoilers. It's not something that affects me. I don't care if because if your whole film to me is hung up on one plot device, it's pretty paper thin. Yeah. Um, so the real meat of a story is your involvement in characters and especially in a genre piece, a lot more so than other films that when they're put in harm's way, how do you feel about what they're going through? You know, do you care about what they're going through? That's right. what matters. And I think you've done that. This is clearly a, despite being a fairy tale, despite being a genre film, you're absolutely telling a human story first here. Nice. Thanks for saying that. I'm glad that came through. Well, yeah. And so we'll talk about the approach with that, with while leaning into some genre areas, um, you're not completely um, selling the, the story short by overindulging in those elements. Of yeah, I think I that's where I have to give credit to the team as a whole, because it really making a film comes down to a matter of tens of thousands of choices per day. Yeah. And at every juncture, what it would be would be um, we have this very limited uh, amount of resources to allocate. Where are we pointing the camera? How long are we pointing the camera at it? What are we giving time? And of course, you're in Iceland and you're like, well, what about that waterfall? And what about that thing? And look at that pack of horses. And we had an amazing second unit for that who did an incredible job of getting us those things. Um but when it came time to where do we really focus the attention and we only have so much attention to give, it's just what is Belle going through? How does either her primary relationship with her father or beast relate to that? Um, and how do, how do all of them feel and how does that move their one story forward? And those there was no other choice to make. Um, and the result of it was, was yes, when you look at the composition of images, you have Iceland flooding in, hopefully through all the cracks. But at the end of the day, something we kept telling ourselves is this could have been a story about a girl on a farm in Kansas who falls in love with like a drug addict, you yeah. know, and her dad is sick and she's just got to get the, the copay medication from the pharmacy money somehow and goes to the drug addict boyfriend to get that. And that's the plot. We could have done that in Kansas for $0. And, and um, instead we are setting it in Iceland in that same archetypal fairy tale. So that was how we approached it. And um, uh, it allowed us all to be really telling that same story together. 
No, that makes perfect sense. And I, and you can absolutely feel that. Um, but you're talking about the idea of where do you spend dollars? And I think you clearly had a focus on sound design in this film. I'm, I'm a sound person. And when, um, I watch a film that is clearly budget conscious. You can, the, nothing will pull me out of a film more than bad sound design. And it's something that when you get it right, you don't really notice it or pay attention to it. And it's one of those thankless things, not unlike editing, that when you're doing it right, it's invisible. And when you screw it up, it just really can sink a project. And I feel like you have a really beautiful sound design, both with the score as well as the mix in this film. Thanks. Yeah, I, I feel that we do too. I um so so Matt Orenstein is the composer of the music. Josh Ascalon is the sound designer. Um we worked unfortunately remotely by that point. Uh it was fully remote until one of our later mixes. Uh I say unfortunately just because being in the room with everybody, you know, you can't like match that. But yeah. The upside of that was it just went on and on and on. And we were, the three of us were obsessive. Um, I was probably the most obsessive and I'll never live that down. Um, but it, the score went through so many iterations and it was all stemming from the composer's passion for, I mean, the guy was literally on the ground recording air and wind sounds while we were shooting. We'd like look up and be like, what's Matt doing over in that waterfall? Is he going to fall off? <laughs> It's like a true obsession with this in the same way that Iceland got into the bones of everyone making the film. Um, it also got into the bones of the post team. And I think that, um, you know, we, Josh should get credit. He was a single person doing sound design. I mean, like that speaks eons to his reach of technical ability and, and Matt with the music just like conveyed the whole spirit of the film. Um, and I just, I, it's one of my favorite parts as well. I don't know. I'm, yeah. Well, it's, it's not something it's not, there's not obvious choices that are being made here with the score. There's um, I think you can, you could lean into the romanticism of this and it could come across as too sentimental. And this film is not that there is something that is um, it. Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookmans. Do you have books, movies, or music gathering dust on your shelves? Give them a new life at Bookmans. They gladly accept trade-ins and buy used media. Clear up some space for new artistic journeys while knowing that your books, movies, and music will find a loving home. On my latest trip to Bookmans, I found a copy of the 1946 film Beauty and the Beast. This film is an absolute classic and a cinematic treasure that has stood the test of time, captivating audiences for generations now. This film is extraordinary. It weaves a spellbinding tale that touches the heart and ignites your imagination. From the very first frame, the exquisite artistry and attention to detail transport you to a mesmerizing realm of fantasy and wonder. Cocteau's visionary direction infuses each scene with poetic elegance and it allows the story to unfold in a visually stunning and emotionally resonant manner. One cannot help but be captivated by the production design and breathtaking cinematography. The opulent castle, with its haunting corridors and magical rooms, becomes a character in itself. And this isn't like when people say New York is a character in the film. This is a literal character in the film. The ethereal lighting 
and intricate set pieces create a visual feast that immerses the audience in a realm of enchantment. What truly sets this rendition of Beauty and the Beast apart is its ability to delve beyond the surface and explore the complexities of human nature. The film delves into themes of love, sacrifice, and the transformative power of acceptance. It reminds us that true beauty lies within and that appearances can be deceiving. The allegorical elements presented throughout the story add depth and thought-provoking layers, making it a timeless tale with universal resonance. Beauty and the Beast, it's nothing short of a triumph when it comes to storytelling and craftsmanship, a true cinematic gem that continues to captivate audiences even after decades. There's very few things you can see that were made 80 plus years ago, or almost 80 years now, I guess, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, that still hold up. That stands as a testament to the power and imagination and the enduring appeal of a tale as old as time. If you seek a film that transports you to a world of magic, look no further than this timeless masterpiece. I cannot recommend the film highly enough and recommend that you go to your local Bookman's to unearth your new favorite film. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. There, there is a sweetness and lightness at moments in this film that it does have. There's more comedy in this than I was anticipating. There's actually several things here. The, Again, the ending of this film actually made me laugh out loud. I was so satisfied with the way that that punctuated. And there's these kind of things that you go against what expectations are. And I found a lot of humor in that. And I'm not sure if it would, how that'll play with an audience, but I definitely was getting a kick out of a lot, a lot of what was going on here. Was that a part of the design here? Am I misreading this completely? Or is that kind of what you were going for? Yeah. The question being what about the humor? Yeah, the humor, the lightness, the sweet. I mean, because there's, there's darkness in here clearly, but this is not something that's like a, um, there, there, there could be something hopeful here, possibly, and there's something that's actually very thoughtful at the center of this film. It's not, this isn't bleakness. So I feel like there is something that is actually, while it's dealing with very dark subject matter, I feel like you do have hope in this film. Yeah, I mean, I I found it to just be, I was kind of following the tone of each interaction. So you have something more comical, you're probably referring to like the Svenny proposal at the beginning. Yeah. Like, yes, that's a, that's absolutely yes for sure. Yeah, I mean, like I couldn't watch the old Beauty and the Beast, the um, the the Cocteau version, and like Cocteau spends forty minutes on the courting in yeah. the first act of that movie, and I thought like this is this is absurd, and and then I mean, Eggert as an actor who plays Svenny just like blew me away, and I was so into how that was all going, and then I think also to her credit, Andrea, Andrea's such a precise. Uh, subtle expression actor. So when she, her reactions to Svenny making her uncomfortable, I was just like eating that up. And that's where I found, I was like, that's what I love about this scene. And then when you move to something maybe more dramatic, like like toward the ending where Beast is contending with his past ghosts, um, no yeah. spoiler there. I just wanted to let that emotion be what it was. And what the film ended up being was a collection of these different moments in this um, in this take. And to me, like the, the real beating heart of it is the sexual tension between Beast and Belle, which takes up a majority of the screen time. And to me, there's nothing more fun than that, that middle ground of sexual tension, because there's awkwardness, there's humor, 
there's fear. There's huge amounts of fear and anticipation. Um, So I was kind of calibrating the tone based around that relationship. And that's where I got to. Um, So, yeah, I would say if there's any disconnect in tone, it's purely a result of my own warped point of view on uh, sexuality. I don't I don't see it that way at all, because it's just it, it, literally that moment when you have the proposal and then they it's that that moment itself is something that's really fun to watch because you're right. It's those two actors working together. It's um, the example that I always think of in Goodfellas, where you have Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci. And there's the Joe Pesci moment where everybody gives all this credit to this scene where he's um you know, talking about like he, there's just, he's going over the top and it's the threat of that moment and it, whether or not he is going to actually kill this guy while he's telling the story. And the way that Ray Liotta plays that though, he shows how serious this moment is. And so, because he's taking it seriously in that moment, that's what gives Joe Pesci the room to go that fucking crazy. And I think that's what she's doing here because his performance is pretty broad, but because she's, pulling it in and so nuanced and small and subtle in it she gives him the room to do that and that's two actors playing beautifully off one another in that moment yeah that makes sense right and so that was the moment where i was thinking okay i can just give into this movie and allow it to tell whatever story it wants to tell at this point because there's when i see that kind of balance and interplay with actors that's the thing i react to for me it's just going back to the you know, college kid and me going to a black box theater and just seeing, you know, actors connect with each other and the set doesn't matter. The sound doesn't matter. Everything else, like it just goes away and you just are pulled in by performance and you absolutely give the room for that here. Nice. Nice. Thank you. So then could you talk a little bit about, um, the tension in this and the way that you do build tension? Cause there is, it is there but it's not something that you do it in a way that I think takes over the film. It is something that slowly builds um, throughout the piece. And it's, you have, you're introduced to the threat very early on, um, but you don't know exactly what that threat, how, how far it's going to go or exactly what's going on. And there's some little bit of misdirect as well. So I'm wondering if you just talk about that, that building. Yeah. I mean, I'll just, uh... The way I would talk about it is we went into the movie, like the the threat of the beast, that was the genre engine of it, of course. Um, and as we were making it, I became far more, literally as we were rehearsing it before we shot it, like I became far more interested in, and I always am, in the a different kind of tension, which was the tension between Bell and Beast and how that built um, from the moment they meet in the cave. And I that's probably evident in the screen time. Like to me, my favorite parts of the movie are the cave, which just draws out the tension slowly, slowly, slowly. And then she's thinking about him a lot, but then not until they get to um, the couple's house in the wilderness. That's my other favorite sequence. And those are the two that really ground. That's the tension I was, that's the tension story I was telling. And the beast monster tension is really, again, like I, in my mind, it's just a, it's a character flaw and it's a character flaw that happens to kill people. Um, but you know, be, again, an addict, I think is like a really good reference that something that Ingi and I talked about a lot. It's like, he's not in control of what's happening to him. Uh, that doesn't excuse his crimes. Um, yeah. but it's, it's something he's afflicted by. And I think we just really treated it in a very 
uh, matter of fact way. And that's how we drove the the monster tension element. So those are the two kind of interplaying. I know that's not what you're asking. Probably no, 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 no. But I, I I love that idea because I think there is that sort of sickness and toxicity is something that exists in all of us where we can be completely self-absorbed and we can you know figuratively kill people um in our and you know leave a a sort of a wake of bodies in our destruction and our selfishness and i think most people go through a phase in their lives where they are completely you know self-absorbed that's what being a teenager is and you know yeah. for and and for some of us, it goes into our 20s. And hopefully by the time you hit your 30s and 40s, you've leveled some of that shit out before you start having kids. So I think that like you could take this film as a exploration of that, because when you see the the idea of the relationship with the father kind of unwinding um, in that sense, and then now there's the sexual awakening in this and what is this going to become? And I, I think the thing that your film does that a lot of other interpretations of this particular story don't do is the amount that this is in fact bell's story this is about her reaction to this not that she's just a reacting to these men that she does feel like she has agency here and a, and a lot of these other versions that's kind of one of the things that it feels very dated but i feel like this is in a way one of the big things that does make this a modern update of this story yeah that makes sense um that makes total sense like i i felt that way too watching other ones um the the part specifically that i think we all were thinking about and making it is like her choice at the end to have to break up with the beast like that scene um yeah. again talking very roundabout like i i wonder if we've all been there before um in parts like with a lot of the actors and i talked about that where you're you're in a relationship that isn't right for you and it's really really hard to leave it and then something you either stay in it or you uh something really rock bottom happens that you just have to walk away um and to me that was just like that's a that, that's not that's just what bell was going through so we kind yeah. of built it all around that and um all all different casting crew members were able to see through that yeah i mean that's i i think that's one of the the things that i personally will react to in a story like this when because i'm i'm a narcissist i project myself into everything i assume every film is about me and <laughs> I, I can see that that side of this where i think of like you were saying those things that we go through and is it the you're when you're breaking up with those people those you know toxic relationships that you've had in your past it's to some degree it's i think more painful because you're actually killing a part of yourself than actually ending this relationship with this person. There's the fear of, well, when I end this, there's a change in me that needs to happen. And am I willing to make that change? And that's the scary shit in life. Is those sort of not not the the outside, it's the internalization of things that really is uh for me personally, the scariest stuff. Exactly what we were thinking about. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Interview well, over. <laughs> well, I I'm really excited. This is getting a theatrical release that you're going to be playing here in Arizona, which is great to hear. Um, oh, you're in Arizona. Okay. Cool. I am. Yeah. I'm in, yeah. I'm in Tucson. So it's, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So not too far from Avondale, we're going to be playing, but I think this is it. absolutely the kind of film that I want to see in a theater. I want to walk out and I want to not only overhear conversations from complete strangers that'll be happening on the way to the parking lot, that this will be something I want to engage with those conversations. And I, 
this is the reason I love movies. It's things like this. It's the, you know, going after the movie for an hour and talking about it. And this is one of those ones that's been sitting with me. I'm not, uh, I, it's that time of year um, where a lot of the stuff that I see by the time I get to the car, I kind of half remember the plot of the movie. Then by the okay. time I get home, I'm really not sure what I just watched. And this is one that is the polar opposite of that. This is something that'll stick with people. Awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. And um, uh, yeah, let me know. Let me know what your experience is after you see it. I'd love to know. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this. And I'm yeah, really excited for this film. So, and I'm excited for whatever else is coming next because we need more films like this. So I I'm hoping there'll be more. Absolutely. There always will be. Thank Perfect. you for taking the time to talk about it. I really yeah. appreciate it. Appreciate it, Max. Take care, man. Bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck, give me hope.
always crack.